0: Hi, good afternoon. Many of you are on the Tosca 3030 that we just held, and so welcome back, and welcome to the people that just joined us for the REACH program. This is our REACH May 2019 update. I'm Herb Estreicher, and today we're gonna talk about two things. We're gonna talk about recent European Chemical Agency Board of Appeal decisions. Secondly, a report that was issued by the European Chemical Agency, which they call ECHA or ECHA, depending on what country you're from in Europe, uh, on their integrated regulatory strategy. Next slide, please. So, we've presented on the Board of Appeals, European Chemical Board of Appeal, Chemical Agency Board of Appeals in the past. Just to remind you, uh, it is a special board, it is housed within the European Chemical Agency building but it is independent from the European Chemical Agency. The European the ECHA Board of Appeals is the final word uh, on, on the ECHA decisions that fall within its jurisdiction. Primary jurisdiction has to do with registration, uh, com- completeness checks, uh, has to do with compliance checks or checking the compliance of registrations to ensure that they meet the legal requirements. It has to do with substance evaluation or uh, decisions that require companies to submit information to support uh, risk evaluations under uh, CORAP, Community Rolling Action Plan. Uh, it also has jurisdiction over data comp disputes on the REACH. It also has jurisdiction in the buyer side area, but for, for, uh, for the, uh, the REACH areas, uh, the, uh, the topics I just mentioned is primary jurisdiction. I want to talk about the important cases that were decided this year since January 2019, and I picked three cases which I thought were particularly noteworthy. Uh, the first case is the Brueggemann case, uh, and that was uh, decided on April 9th, uh, and it basically has to do with the care with which the European Chemical Agency has to announce its policies. Now, unlike the U.S., where we usually go through notice some common rulemaking, and so when EPA changes policies, they usually do it by no covered rulemaking. And so there's an opportunity for industry or environmental groups to weigh in uh, so that mistakes are not made. Quite often in Europe, uh, the agencies announce policy through you know, press releases and things of that nature. And it's possible uh, that the precision with which they speak in that context uh, you know, may not be precise enough. And this is an example. So what happened here is that uh, the European Chemical Agency issued a uh, proposed rule. Uh, They did that on the dates report, January 28th, 2015. They did it by a news alert, and they said that after a draft compliance check decision had been notified to the registrant, uh, the agency would no longer consider any updates to the registration dossier. So just so you know, and I'm sure many of you know, a compliance check decision Uh, if an ECHA opens up the registration dossier to see whether it meets the legal requirements, if it concludes that a study is missing or or an adaptation such as weight of evidence or read-across is deficient in some respect, then it will draft a decision to require that the registrant uh, update their dossier to to bring the dossier into compliance with the legal requirements. Uh, That draft decision is open to a a 30-day comment period where the registrant can submit comments after the agency takes into consideration those comments, uh, it goes to the Member State Committee, uh, which is a committee comprised of the competent authorities of all 28 member states (soon to be 27 after Brexit). Uh, and uh, you know, if, if the Member State Committee ha- proposes amendments, uh, then there's a further process. But if the Member State Committee doesn't propose amendments, uh, then the uh, decision, the draft decision, is finalized, and then the order issues. And we've we've talked about that before, but so what ECHA said basically is that once uh, they uh, submit the draft decision to the registrant to start the 30-day comment period, it would be too late to update your dossier uh, before you receive your decision. Uh, and so they announced that uh, by uh, news alert on January 28th. Now what happened is in a practical guide, which is also guidance and not a formal uh, regulation, but also guidance, that they issued subsequent to that, uh, July 12th, uh, was somewhat inconsistent with their news alert. So what they said in the practical guide is that you basically had a cutoff when you could uh, update your dossier and still impact the decision-making process uh, <clears throat> unless, you would, unless you identified in your comments that you planned to submit an update. So that's what they said in their practical guide. If you think about that's entirely inconsistent with what the uh, news alert said. And the registrar received a draft, uh, compliance decision on December 14th, which is subsequent to both the news alert as well as the practical guide. Next slide. And in the cover letter to the draft decision, EPA then re- again restated the cutoff in a different way. And in the cover letter to the draft decision, it basically said in no uncertain terms that the agency will not take account of any dossier update after, you re- after the registrar received this draft decision and that said that in no practical terms. So the Board of Appeals reviewed all this and said, well, you know, the agency has been inconsistently stated their policy three different times. And so therefore, they did not provide the registrant with sufficient legal certainty to be able to understand what the rules were. So that's a very common sense uh, decision by the board, and I think it alerts the ECHA that they have to, when they make policy changes, and they announce policy changes, that they have to take great care in terms of how they state those, uh, those policies. So here's a case where the, the Board of Appeals decided there was a breach of the principle of legal certainty because the three different times that the ECHA announces policies, it announced them differently. So that's the Brueggemann case, very interesting case. <clears throat> Next slide. Uh, So, I'm gonna go to the next slide, I'm gonna skip that. Okay, second case, which I think is quite important, is the Reach and Colors Craft. This is a data sharing dispute. It's been reported in the press already. It is a central case, uh, a very, very important case. You may know, you may recall, that uh, the Commission issued a regulation on data sharing on uh, uh, January 1, sorry, January 9, uh, 2019. Sorry, 2016, January 9, 2016. It's regulation 2016 slash nine. That substantially revamped the rules under which uh, data sharing has to occur under each. And uh, it, it made the rules much more explicit. Uh, Previously, there had been uh, only a few paragraphs in REACH under Article 27 uh, for new substances and Article 30 for existing substances. So there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the rules of the game were in terms of data sharing. The agency had issued data sharing guidance, but there was nothing in legislation. Here you had, in 2016, a implementing regulation uh, which spelled out specifically, you know, what uh, a data owner had to do in terms of uh, responding to uh, requests for data uh, for letters of access from potential registrants. <clears throat> now, at issue here, uh, you know, was a uh, were four 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 things that uh, that the data owner were asking for. Well, first of all, four things that the either the potential LOA purchaser, letter of access purchaser, or the data owner were dispute in dispute. The first one was that the uh, LOA purchaser wanted the data owner or the lead registrant in this particular case to list the studies and identify uh, the authors of the studies uh, that they were paying for, or going to be paying for. Um, And the the data owner refused to do that. Second thing is, uh, as part of the LOA cost, uh, the uh, data owner listed various administrative costs. We'll go in that in some detail. And also very, very importantly, they imposed an 8% annual surcharge. So for example, the registration dossiers went in 2010, uh, and this was, uh, 2000, so 2017 when the LOA purchaser asked for a letter of access, the data owner or the lead registrant tried to tag on an 8% annual surcharge. Now many of you here who have purchased letters of access or who have sold letters of access know that adding on an annual surcharge is fairly common, and we'll talk about that. Secondly and lastly, <coughs> the data owner had imposed a 15% surcharge to the value uh, given to each study. Now, you may recall, and many of you who are involved in this know, that it's not uncommon uh, to add a surcharge for risk premiums to studies. Okay, next slide. So, uh, as I mentioned, there's the implementing regulation 2069, uh, and that really basically requires that a data owner provide clear and comprehensible explanations as to which information is to be shared, how the cost of generating the information is determined and how administrative costs are determined. And they have to keep records of this and there are other things in that regulation, but basically uh, it really uh, requires uh, you know, true transparency and full transparency on how the costs of the letter of access are, are uh, calculated determined. Next slide. So what did the board f- uh, find? Well, first thing they found, which is quite important, is they said the uh, European Chemical Agency is competent to assess uh, the, you know, whether the uh, price of a, uh, a letter of access is fair, transparent, and non-discriminatory. The rule before was that the European Chemical Agency in a data dispute limited itself uh, in terms of deciding whether the parties made best efforts to come to an agreement. And if they found that the data owner did not make the best efforts, then they provided the data to the uh, potential registrant for free. If they found that the uh, potential registrant uh, did not make best efforts in coming an agreement, then they, they, they held for the data owner. So they limited themselves to examining the arguments, and the justifications, and the, and the discussion the negotiations to see whether best efforts have been made. The board said, no, 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 they can go beyond that. They can decide the substance, whether the price of the letter of access is actually fair, transparent, and non-discriminatory. That is an enormous change. Why do they do that? Well, because it's had this implementing regulation, which you know dis- says that you know discusses what one needs to do, and the implementing regulations have different sections for fairness, different sections for transparency, different sections for non whether something is discriminatory or not, and therefore there were legal standards in place that gave the ECA competency to evaluate those questions in terms of data uh, comp disputes. So, in terms of identification, study titles, study authors, which is one of the things the LOA purchaser wanted in this particular case. The board held that the titles of the studies and the authors are essential to allow potential registrant to determine whether it needs to obtain permission to further to those studies. Why? Because it allows the, you know, potential registrant to see whether those studies are available elsewhere by doing literature searches or things of that nature. Or or contacting other possible data owners. Next slide. Um, the board said that administrative costs must be actual in the sense that they can be determined either by proof or by approximation. So what had happened in this particular case is the uh, data owners, which was part of a consortium, said, well, we're, this consortium's handling 50 substances, and so we, it's very hard to assign data costs to any particular substance, so we basically uh, you know, uh, uh, apportion them uh, in some fashion among the various substances that are being uh, managed by the consortium. Um, and the board said that's not proper uh, and so I assume that uh, there are people out here in the audience that are part of consortia, they have European subsidiaries that are part of consortia, they should be mindful of this. Uh, now the interesting thing that the board said, one of the things that the, uh, uh, the data owners had tried to tag on was the cost of managing a consortia from inception. And the board said quite importantly that the LOA purchasers were not members of the consortium and therefore they could not be required to pay a share of the administrative costs of managing the consortium. They could only be required to pay a portion of the CIF administrative costs. If you know, there really are very few CIF administrative costs, because normally you just send out an email once every couple of months or year to the CIF saying, this is what we did. Next slide. 8% surcharge board held that that was unfair. Uh, They also held that late entry fees are discriminatory. Uh, they held that the 15% surcharge was just tagged on as a risk premium in case the, you know, to to defray the risk that a study would not be successful, would have to be uh, redone, and it's very, very common practice. They said that 15% surcharge is unfair because the information had already been generated, mostly before uh, entering the force of re-regulation. It's already gathered and submitted to the agency, and so therefore there was no risk. So this, of course, calls into question Assessment risk premiums. The studies that have not already been conducted. Uh, presumably, it's appropriate if a study has to be conducted in the future. We're in uh, next slide. Uh, third case, the Thor case that was decided on the 29th of January 2019. This is a very also a very interesting uh, case, and this is, this also has to do with when ECHA acts, they have to act under legal authority. They can't simply send out letters or communications. uh, uh, They have to have legal authority under which they act, and that's a very important point. Um, And so what happened here, we had one registration uh, for a substance designated as a a multi-constituent. We had a second registration for the same substance with the same European chemical uh, inventory number, EC inventory number, uh, but designating the substance as a UBCB. So you had two registrations for the same substance, which violates the one substance, one registration principle. The ECHA issued a communication, a letter that ordered the registrants to merge these two registrations into one joint submission. And what the board said is no, the ECHA didn't have authority to issue that letter. What they did was ultra-virus. If they wanted uh, to order the companies to merge the registrations, they have to act under Article 20. Article 20 is the completeness check. It's possible in the case where there are uh, multiple regist- uh, joint registrations, that EPA, uh, that ECA can rescind the registration number uh, using the Article 20 uh, completeness check procedure. But that is a procedure, you can go to, you know, you get opportunity to comment, the right to be heard, uh, you have the opportunity to go to the Board of Appeals if you disagree with the European Chemical Agency. Same thing, Article 41 is the uh, a compliance check procedure, that's another way that the ECHA could have dealt with this. But again, that gives the registrants an opportunity to be heard and defend their position, uh, and to go to the Member State Committee if warranted, and to go to European Chemical Agency Board of Appeals if warranted, but the board, so the board said, no, you couldn't act under uh, communication that had no legal authority. That was what we call in Latin, ultra ultravirus. Next slide, please. <coughs> okay, switching topics. Um, ECHA issued on April 2019. So again, this this uh, presentation is mostly about what happened in April, with, with a few exceptions, because it's May. Uh, and they issued a a, a um, uh, integrated regulatory strategy, which basically is intended to map the universe of registered registered substances on the European markets, and help authorities, presumably the member states, to identify, plan and monitor the progress on identifying and regulating substances of concern. The European Chemicals Agency's interim goal for all this is to generate enough information on all substances registered above 100 metric tons by the year 2020. Very ambitious. Next slide, please. So what are the findings of this first annual report? Well, ECHA found that there were 270 substances that are high priority for risk management, that means they are likely to go into either substance evaluation or kidney listing or authorization or restriction depending on the substance and its hazards. They said that 1,300 substances are of high priority for data generation. Now remember, these are registered substances, so ECHA must believe that for those 1,300 substances, there is some element of the reach data requirements that are not satisfied by the existing registrations. 1300, quite a number. 450 uh, substances, they said are considered of low priority because they're already sufficiently regulated. That doesn't mean they're of low concern, but they could be of low priority because there's already a regulation in place phasing them out of banning them. Uh, and Then 500 substances are of low priority after assessment. I suggest people should try to get a, a hold of that list of 500 substances by filing a, uh, a public access a document request, which is the European's version the Freedom of Action, Freedom of Information Act, so that you can tout in your market that you are one of the low priorities uh, after assessment substances. And then they said, oddly enough, that there's 2,700 substances of uncertain priority. Next slide. So SEPIC, I don't think is on this call, uh, which is the, uh, the European version of the American Chemistry Council, uh, issued a press release, and I'm gonna point out what they said and then maybe talk about it a little bit. They said, we welcome ECHA's report. Uh, they said that the uh, and other associations have worked with the authorities to screen some 1,000 plastic additives. Uh, they say that regulators can now use this, uh, this inventory that CEPHIC and other associations have developed as a starting point to decide which substances should be prioritized for risk assessment and that such a collaborative model may be used to map other substances. Uh, next slide. Uh, they also said that they are, are planning to discuss with ECHA how to contribute to ECHA's work of checking data for 2,700 substances from the so called uncertain area. Remember, I said that there were 2,700 substances, there was not sufficient information that the ECHA could not decide how to prioritize them to help identify substances of potential concern and facilitate their risk assessment. Having a list of those substances available will help the industry to prioritize the review and updates. Uh, to relevant uh, reach dossiers. So this is a very interesting approach. I actually would suggest that you think about this uh, approach. Compare it to um, what would be a U.S. response. If EPA said, if U.S. EPA said that there are you know, um, 46,000 substances on the active inventory, uh, they lack sufficient information on 40,000 of them, just throwing out numbers, uh, and then u uh, s industry would say, "Well, you know we will work with e p a uh to uh you know uh, gather information and help them prioritize which of those substances are a uh, priority for risk assessment and perhaps restrictions so very interesting uh, that's May for reach um, next slide. so I invite you to remember that we have our and it looks like there's not a correct uh, web link, because it should be OSHA 3030. Our next OSHA 3030 uh, presentation is on, uh, well, it's not May 29th, it is May 22nd, is that right? Yeah, that wasn't corrected. And our next TOSCA 3030 is on June 12th, next slide. And uh, there will be no June uh, 10th reach uh, 3030, there will be a TOSCA 3030. I will be in Europe uh, presenting at some conference, and so I won't be here and it's gonna to be too late in the day for one o'clock for me. Uh, and by the way, I am sympathetic to people who write in, and they do write in periodically and say, why do you hold this at one o'clock? It precludes Europeans from joining this." And I appreciate that, and I am sympathetic, but this really is for US companies that wanna know something about REACH. There are many programs in Europe given by many, in many different fora uh, on REACH matters. So there's very little in the US, uh, which is why we hold this thing, and we hold it at one o'clock, uh, which allows people from the West Coast and the East Coast to participate. We do welcome uh, you know, any uh, participants from Europe as, or Asia, but this is intended to be largely geared uh, for U.S. companies that are struggling with the European REACH regime, which is why we hold it at one o'clock. Um, that says thank you, and I'm on time. Take care, everybody. I will see you in July, uh, but we will have somebody give the TSCA 3030 in June. Take care. Have a good day.